The book of the Bible that we are exploring is the Old Testament book of Judges. And we've said every single week that the book of Judges is is a series of true stories that are written with the intent to show God's people God's grace and to therefore call them to faith and obedience. And so each week we've looked at a different judge, which don't picture like Judge Judy, like civil court, gown, gavel. Picture military hero. And the book of Judges gives a lot of press time, gives a lot of, spends a lot of ink on the person of Gideon. And we looked at him last week. We're going to look at him again tonight. We'll spend a, actually a whole other week looking at him next week. But let me read this passage out of Judges chapter 6, and we'll um, uh, explore this uh, passage together. <clears throat> this is Judges 6, verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, that's Gideon, the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is God, really is a God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. This is God's word. For us tonight. If you would, let's pray together before we consider it. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we would ask uh, for your mercy and for your kindness in these moments uh, to be our teacher and to lead us into truth. Uh, we uh, have no hope of understanding this and applying this to our life apart from the Holy Spirit. So, Father, would you please uh, send him uh, to uh, open up our eyes, unclog our ears, and help us, teach us. And that would be our prayer. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we dive in, let me ask you a question. If you consider yourself to be a Christian tonight, what do you think your biggest problem is? Just in a general sense, this is a rhetorical question. In a general sense, what do you think your biggest problem is? If you don't consider yourself a Christian tonight, I'll ask you the same question. What do you think your biggest problem is? And we can get personal here. What do you think my, what do you think Matt Howell's biggest problem is? Some of you maybe have a list already forming in your head. Here's the point. Regardless of where you are, for you and for me, our problem is the same. It's one and the same. The Bible does not describe your deepest problem first in terms of sin, but describes your biggest problem and my biggest problem first in terms of worship. The reason why we sin, the reason why we screw up, the reason why we can't rest, the reason why we are addicted to things that we are addicted to, 
The reason why we have the issues that we have in our life, it's all traced back to a deeper fundamental worship problem. Now, when the Bible uses that word worship and talks about worship, it's not talking about it necessarily as far as like Sunday morning religious observance, praise and worship singing. That's a very narrow definition. The Bible's definition of worship basically means this, what your heart is devoted to, what it is that you love. And so Gideon, in this story, he's called to go after the, uh, the, the heart of the problem, which really is the problem of the heart. He's called by God to go and tear down these altars that the people of the day were using to worship uh, idols. Okay, what is an idol? Before we get going, let me just answer that real quick. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, so I'll just kind of do a brief overview of, of what this is. Um, they were worshiping Baal and Asherah. Baal was the mythological god that supposedly was in control of the weather. So if you sacrifice to Baal and you get good on, you get, you know, in Baal's, you know, good side, he will bless you with good weather. And for an agricultural society, good weather meant good crops, which ultimately the end game of this was food and money. So the reason why they would worship Baal is because they wanted food and they wanted money. Asherah was the mythological goddess of fertility. And so they would worship this goddess to get children because in this society, children were basically a protection and security and help. So, so at the end of the day, the people of Israel were looking to these idols to rescue them. They were looking to these idols and worshiping them to get meaning and purpose in their life, to get joy, to get security, to get happiness, to get, to get uh, purpose. Idolatry then is whenever you look to something else to give you what only God can give you. Idolatry is looking to something else to give you what only God can give you. And so here's what you have to see. Anything in your life that is so central to your life that you say, if I don't have this, I I won't have a meaningful life, that is an idol. You are worshiping something. And you may be thinking, okay, Matt, I'm not religious. I don't consider myself religious. I don't worship anything. Biblically speaking, don't be offended by this, but don't be naive. When you are living for something, when you wake up in the morning and you live for something, whatever that is, whatever it is that your heart is really devoted for, it doesn't have to be God. It could be anything. Whatever that is, that's your God. That is your idol. That is your functional Lord and Savior. And so if you think about it, it could be anything. You could be really living for and really worshiping, in the deepest sense of that word, uh, family, uh, your career, money, uh, your reputation, food, Sex, your social standing, athletic skill, your uh, uh, political cause, a social cause, your moral record. It could be anything. So here's what we have to see. The way that Gideon confronts the idols in this passage is unbelievably helpful because it helps us to understand how we can confront ours as well. And I've, I've included this in your outline. He shows us three ways that we can confront our idols. This passage shows us how we can identify our idols, how we can expose them, and then how we can destroy them. And those are the three things I want to look at for the rest of our time, okay? How we can identify our idols, what is it that you truly love, truly worship, how we can unmask them and expose them, and how we can ultimately destroy them, okay? So let's just look at these one at a time. How can you, how can me, how can we identify our idols? Two ways. Here's the first way. The first way that you can know what your idol is is when you sacrifice to it. 
You will know what your idol is when you are sacrificing things for it in order to get it. Here's what I mean. These idols in this story, actually, there was a literal altar, a literal altar where they would sacrifice animals, they would sacrifice uh, their children sometimes in order to appease these gods. And so it was basically a form of manipulation. They, you know, the idols would say, hey, I can give you security, I can give you peace, I can give you money, I can give you joy. But I want something in return. And so it was this business transaction where the people would say, okay, in order to get on your good side, I'll sacrifice an animal, and that'll make you happy, and then you'll give me what I really want. And you think, okay, this is the most archaic thing ever. Matt, nobody sacrifices to the gods anymore. Really? Think about it. Last season on The Office, um, there is a connection. Last season on The Office, you know, when Michael Scott, who's the Dunder Mifflin paper company um, manager, when he was leaving and Will Ferrell came in for a little bit, you know, Will Ferrell's character was uh, D'Angelo Vickers, which I love that name, D'Angelo Vickers. When Will Ferrell's character came in, um, he began to identify another one of The Office workers, Andy Bernard, as the Office funny guy. And it wasn't because Andy was, you know, told jokes and was humorous. Will Ferrell just really got a kick out of whenever Andy, like, hurt himself. So if you remember this particular scene, uh, they're in the break room, and D'Angelo Vickers, Will Ferrell, comes in. He's like, oh, having such a rough day. Make me laugh, funny boy. And Andy Bernard doesn't know what to do, so he sticks his hand in the toaster, and it's like burning his hand, and then he goes to the, uh, the cabinet, Will Ferrell's you know, starting to smile at this point, and he gets a big thing of cheese puffs and like dumps them all over himself, and Will Ferrell's starting to you know, chuckle a little bit, and so Andy grabs the, the coffee pot and pours hot coffee all over his crotch, and Will Ferrell's now starting to laugh, and he's like, hey, drink the soap, drink the soap. So Andy's like getting the, the hand soap and like squirting it into his mouth, what is going on there? Why is he doing that? Andy is saying, in order to get the new boss's approval, I'm willing to sacrifice my dignity. In order to get his approval, which I really want, I'm willing to just sacrifice my dignity as a human being. Here's a little bit more personal example, a little bit more down-to-earth, real-life example. When Catherine and I were living in Charlotte, we got to know uh, a, a friend, and this man's idol was clearly his job. It was either uh, connected, it was, it was either money or performance or success, but it was definitely connected to his job. And so what that meant was for him is that he overworked. He would go in the office first thing early in the morning. He would stay at the office late and come home late at night. Uh, he'd be responding to emails uh, at the dinner table. He'd work often on the weekends. And so for this person, his idol was looking at him and saying, look, if you want success, if you want to serve me, if you, if you want to climb the corporate ladder, you have to sacrifice your family. And he said, okay, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to sacrifice my family. The question that you have to ask yourself, and the question that I have to ask myself is this, why is it that we sacrifice what we sacrifice? Our sleep, our money, our ethics? What is the thing that we are trying to get Whatever that is, whenever you are sacrificing something, you are trying to get something else. And whatever that is, that is your idol. For some of you, you are willing to give up your personal sexual boundaries with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You're willing to give up and to sacrifice your your moral and your sexual ethics. Because the thing that you are trying to get, most likely, is the other person's love. The other person's affection. And, and, And you are saying, without that... 
I, I, I don't know how I would live. Without that, I don't, feel, I don't feel important. I don't feel significant in the world. I have to have that. And in order to get that, there's no boundaries. I'm willing to do whatever in order to get it. And so what that looks like is that uh, you, you know that you shouldn't be having sex, but you do. Uh, you know that you shouldn't let the other person walk all over you, but you let them. You, you, you know um, that you shouldn't act like you're practically married, but you are. And the reason is, is because the, the reason there's no boundaries whatsoever in the relationship is because you're serving a deeper idol. You're saying, I, in the heart of my heart, I have to have that person's love, and I'm willing to sacrifice and give up whatever in order to get it. For others of you, uh, your idol is physical beauty or just simply being skinny. And your idol is looking at you and it's saying, look, in order to serve me, in order to get me, you have to sacrifice food. You have to start counting calories. You have to start working out crazy amounts and work your body, body into the ground in order to get me. That's what you have to sacrifice in order to get me. And some of you are saying, okay, I'm willing to do that. I will do that. I will sacrifice in order to get you. And so what you have to see is that's the first way that you can identify what your idol is, is when you are sacrificing things in order to serve it, in order to get it. Here's the second way that you can identify what your idols are. It's when you revert to anger and violence in order to protect it. You will know what your idols are when, if they are threatened, you will react violently in order to protect them. And here's what I mean by this. It says in verse 27, if you look at it, Gideon is afraid to tear down the altar in the daytime. Why is that? Well, because he knows that if his friends and his families see him taking away their idol, they will want to kill him. And he's actually correct, right? I mean, it says, like, the next morning when he wakes up and everybody wakes up and they see their idol has been taken, the first thing they say is, who did this? We have to kill him. If you are in the throes of an idol, you can look very respectable on the outside. But as soon as that idol is threatened, as soon as that idol gets jeopardized, uh, you react with violence and extreme anger. And so the question is, what is it in your life that makes you feel the most angry? Is it feeling cheated? Is it uh, losing in a game of pickup? Is it um, having your reputation jeopardized? Is it traffic? Whenever you react with extreme anger, that can, you can put your finger on, okay, I, I am reacting with violence in order to protect something. This is, I'm putting my finger on what is the deepest part of my worship. Uh, I haven't read the book. But I watched the movie, The Help, and uh, great movie. And if you're familiar at all with the story, one of the characters is this character named Hilly. Hilly. And uh, her entire self-image is based on being in the know, is based on being seen as perfect and as put together and as better than basically everybody else and having all the information be at the inside circle of everything else. And if you're familiar at all with the story, at, at one point, um, she eats what she thinks is a chocolate pie. And it's actually uh, made with human feces instead of chocolate pie, instead of chocolate. When the person who did this to her leaks out the information and Hilly's reputation is now being jeopardized, what happens? The claws come out. Right? Hilly, who is this, you know, southern, polite, perfect, sweet woman, reacts with this fierce, 
violence because she is saying the number one thing in my life is my reputation of being thought well, well of and if that gets threatened game over the violence but you know mostly mostly for, I would say for most college students when your idols get threatened you don't react with violence necessarily to other people you react with violence to yourself the violence is an, is an outside it's, it's violence inside meaning this when you have lost a good thing and it's a good thing to you you're sad you're bummed out. But when you lose something that's a good thing, that you have made an ultimate thing, you want to kill yourself. You, want, you, you are utterly depressed, utterly crushed. There is a, um, uh, uh, a man, author, postmodern novelist named uh, David Foster Wallace. And he gave the commencement speech for Kenyon College back in 2005. It's unbelievable. You can look it up online. This man is not a Christian. And I want to read you what he says in this graduation speech. Here's what he says. There is, no, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And he goes on, he says, if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. You worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out, and so on. This man's not a Christian. Three years after he gave this speech, he killed himself. We don't know why. We don't know what it was that was at the center of his life. But whatever it is, we do know this. It ate him alive. It ate him alive. Look, there are lots of students at App. There's lots of students in this room that claim to worship God, claim to be Christians, go to church, come to campus ministries, and yet you are so invested in your academic performance that if you bomb a test, it feels like you don't have any reason to get up the next morning. Or you are so invested in a romantic relationship where if you break up, it really does feel like you don't have a reason to live. Or you are so invested in having other people like you that just getting one little hint of criticism or critique just leaves you rattled the core of your being. Look, that is how you can identify what your idols are. When, when if they are threatened to be taken from you, you react with extreme violence, either to others or to yourself. That's the first thing. That's how you can identify what your idols are, what it is that you are actually worshiping. Here's the second thing, how we can actually expose them. <coughs> how we can expose them and unmask them as shams. Here's what I mean. Look back at the story. It's really interesting, but as this mob gathers to kill Gideon, Gideon's dad steps in to defend his son. And look at what he says in verse 31. I think it's really interesting. Joash is his name. Joash replies to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be surely put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. I love that because here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, my son tore down Baal's altar and you're here trying to defend him. 
If Baal really is a big boy, he can put on his big boy pants and defend himself. Why do you need to defend your God? If, God, if Baal really is this powerful, strong God that you think he is, he doesn't, he doesn't need you to defend him. But the reality is, is that he can't defend himself because he's not real. He is a sham. It's the whole Wizard of Oz thing. This is a joke. He is not real. He's not really there. You see what he's doing? He's looking through these idols, and he is saying they are counterfeits. They're shams. They are promising you, if you serve me, if you worship me, I'll give you money, I'll give you security, I'll give you protection and meaning and purpose, and they cannot make good on those promises. They can't make good on those promises. And so what we have to do is we have to begin to, once we've identified what our idols are, look through them. And expose them as counterfeits. Expose them as shams. They cannot live up to what they're promising. They promise you satisfaction. They promise you happiness. And they let you down time and time again. There's this great book that I just, uh, a great chapter in this book about idolatry that I just read by Christopher Wright. And he framed this in a way that was unbelievably helpful. He says this, false gods never fail to fail. False gods never fail to fail. That's the only thing about a false god that you can depend on. The idols of the story are saying, worship me, serve me, and, and if you get me, I will, I will satisfy you, I'll make you happy. And they let you down. They let you down. They don't work. When Boris Becker, who's a great tennis all-star, he won his third uh, Grand Slam title. And after he won his third Grand Slam title in a row, all the reporters came up to him and they asked him, you know, Boris Becker, you've just won your third Grand Slam title. What is going to be your greatest challenge now? And they put, his, put the microphones in his face. He looks these reporters dead in the eye. And here's what he says. This is a true story. He looks at them dead in the eyes and says this. My greatest challenge now is trying not to kill myself. What was going on there? Here's what was going on. His idol of saying, get to the top. Be the best athlete. Be the best tennis player. Climb the tops and and you'll get all the success. I will fulfill you. I will make you happy. I will make you satisfied. And he worked his entire life and got there. And he realized it's empty. There's nothing there. And you have felt that, right? You have felt, okay, if I just get that, if I just get a new phone, if I get a new iPod or a new iPad, If I get some sort of gadget, my life will be easy, it'll be efficient, it'll be exciting, it'll be put together. And you get it, and like a week later you're bored with it. And something else has already come out and you want that now. When will we learn that these things are not satisfying us? Or, for example, you think, while I'm at App, I'm going to live for the weekend. I'm going to make every weekend here amazing and great and fun. And so you just kind of dive headfirst into the party scene. And by the time you get to be a senior, if you've done that long enough, you realize how boring and how cliche that is. Where it's just the same thing every single weekend. And it doesn't satisfy. It just leaves you feeling empty. It doesn't doesn't work. It It doesn't live up to the promise that it promised you. That I will make you happy. I will fulfill you. Whatever it is that you've centered your life on, if it's not God, if it's not God and his grace and his glory... It will let you down. And if you fail it, it will punish you mercilessly. Idols are not forgiving. If you fail it, you will be punished. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Some of you have said um, that my idol is 
my looks, my weight. And so when you look in the mirror, you often tell yourself, I am ugly and I am fat. What is going on there? That is your idol speaking to you and saying, you have failed me and now I'm punishing you. You've, you, you ate too much of the last meal, you skipped a workout, and now it is berating you mercilessly, punishing you. Another example. Uh, some of you have said, uh, I know I've said this before, I know that God forgives me, but I, I can't forgive myself. Maybe you've said that, maybe you have friends that have said that. What's going on there? What's going on when you say, I, I, I know that God forgives me, but I can never forgive myself? That's actually idolatry. Here's how. This actually took um, uh, a pastor by the name of Tim Keller, who is a um, Presbyterian pastor up in New York, to connect the dots on this one for me. But here's what he says. He says this. Whenever you say that, uh, you are basically saying God's approval, God's opinion of you, does not mean as much to you as somebody else's. Somebody else's opinion of you, either yours or somebody else's, means more to you than God's, and that's idolatry. And he tells this example of this woman that he knew uh, who had utterly failed her parents. And she said, uh, I know that God forgives me for the way that I've hurt my parents, but I can never forgive myself. And what's going on there is this. She is saying, I, I've, lost God's, I've lost my parents' approval, which is gone forever. And even though I have God's approval, this one means more to me. Do you see what's going on? She has, put, she has put someone else's approval over God's. And because she has failed it, she can never shake the sense of failure, punishing her, berating her. Look, the reason why we have to expose our idols, the reason why we have to uncover them and unmask them is because they are lying to you. And they're lying to me. And if we fail them, they will unforgivingly punish us over and over and over. So how do we get rid of them? If, if idols are full in your heart and in mine, how do we destroy them? It's the last thing I want to look at. How we can destroy our idols. It's interesting. If you look at what Gideon does, he tears down this altar to the false gods, right? But if you look, he doesn't stop there. In verse 26, he builds another altar on the same exact spot, but this time to the true God, to the God of the Bible. He replaces the, the false altar with the true altar. He, he replaces false worship with true worship. Or in other words, he, here's the point. Idols cannot be removed. They can only be replaced. Idols can't be removed. They can only be replaced. You have to worship something. You can't just say, I'm just not going to worship anything. I'm just going to turn that part of my heart off. You can't do that. I mean, Bob Dylan knew this better than we do. He said, you've got to serve somebody. You can't get out from under this. You have to worship something. This is just the way that the human heart works. Think about it like this. Why is it that when a, a couple breaks up, so often, one of the two people from the couple that just broke up starts immediately dating someone new? What's going on there? They are saying, in order for me to get over the breakup and the heartache, I'm going to go on the rebound. And I'm just going to transfer my heart away from this to this. And you may think, well, that is cruel. That's not right. And maybe that's true. But that's just how the human heart works. The way that you get out from the allure of your idols is when you begin to see God as bigger and more believable and more beautiful. The way that you get out from the allure of your false idols is to begin to see the true God as more beautiful and more believable than them. And here's how this begins to work. Look back at the people's response in, in verse 30. I'll just read it for you. They say this. 
bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and he's cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Here's what they're saying. You have sinned against our God and as a result you must die. And that's actually a true principle. Whenever you sin against your God, you have to pay for it. You have to be punished. You have to die even. Every God functions like this. Only the true God of the Bible, the true and living God, says this. Even though you must die when you sin against me, out of love for you, I will send someone else to die in your place. I will not make you die, even though you deserve it. But out of complete grace, I will make someone else die and pay the price that you owe me. Only the true God actually says, instead of killing you, I will kill my son Jesus Christ on the cross in your place. And I will not punish you, but I will punish him. And because I punished him, now I can forgive you. When that begins to enter into your heart, he begins to seem so much more beautiful, so much more believable. When when that sort of love and grace actually takes hold of your soul, And it frees you. All of your idols begin to look weak and oppressive and they look like liars. Look, to the degree that you see the God of the Bible as more glorious and as more beautiful, to that degree you will not want to worship these idols and you will be freed from the snares. You will see him as more beautiful and as more believable and as more glorious and as more gracious and as more loving and you will see your idols as weak and oppressive and they will lose their attraction. And you will no longer want to worship them but to worship him. Look, before we're done, I just want to make three practical points. Because in order for you to destroy your idols, in order for you to replace the idols in your heart, it really takes three things, as you'll see from this passage. First, it takes a new perspective on suffering. It takes a new perspective on suffering. Because sometimes God takes things from you. And as a result, you experience unbelievable amounts of pain and unbelievable amounts of suffering. But what is going on is that maybe he is, he is pulling from your heart an idol. And because you are looking to that idol to give you life, to give you joy, to give you meaning, it feels like God is killing you. It feels like death, but it's actually God saving you. He's pulling away the cancer. He's pulling out the poison of that which is really killing you. And in that moment, suffering feels like God is killing you, but he's actually saving you. This takes a whole new perspective on suffering. That when God's taking things from you, he's actually trying to save you from the idol. Here's the second thing it takes. The second thing it takes is it takes community. If you look at verse 27, Gideon doesn't do this by himself. He he rounds up ten of his friends to go and tear down and replace this altar with him. And this means you can't do this by yourself. Your heart and my heart, we are too prone to wander. We need other people. We need a community around us that are speaking truth into us. Because if you don't know yourself well enough to know how quick you will believe lies, it's unbelievable. You have to have other people in your life speaking into you, reminding you about the truth of the gospel, reminding you of his grace, reminding you that he is better than the idol that you want to serve. You cannot do that by yourself. You need community. You need the church. You need other people around you constantly reminding you that the gospel is true because you'll forget it and I'll forget it. Here's the last thing that we need. Uh, This takes having a new perspective on suffering. It takes community. And this also takes time and faithfulness. You know, we're going to look at this next week. But Gideon, actually later on in his life, goes back to the same spot 
and he tears down the idol. He tears down the altar that he just rebuilt, and he rebuilds the altar to the idol. He reverts back to idolatry. Why? Because his experience of God's grace was shallow and it was short-lived. He did not walk faithfully with God throughout the whole course of his life. And here's what this means for us. Look, you can get, you can get really pumped up and really jazzed up about God in a moment. And that is great. But that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is a day-in and day-out faithful and obedient response to his grace. And it takes a lot of time to see him as more glorious and as more beautiful than you see all these other idols that are, you know, uh, vying for your affection. And so what that means is that you have to start now. You have to start reflecting on his grace now. You have to get involved in a community now. You have to start believing the gospel in a deeper way now. This takes time. This is not going to happen overnight. So start now. Start believing the gospel. Start taking it in because this takes time. Okay, let me finish here. And I'll conclude with uh, a story. It's a true story. A friend of mine who's a pastor at a church, one of the women in his church, um, was addicted to pain medicine. And uh, she was so addicted to pain meds where it got to the point where uh, she would just make up an excuse and come over to your house and knock on the door and say, hey, my, you know, my toilet's busted. Can I use your restroom? And you know, her friends would let her in. And they'd, she'd go to the uh, um, restroom, close the door, lock it, and then start rummaging through the medicine cabinets trying to find pain medicine. And it got so bad that, that she eventually couldn't get her hands on the pain meds. And so one day um, she shoots herself. Miraculously, she survives. In fact, she was the one that calls the police and calls the paramedics. And, and so the paramedics get to the scene, and uh, they pull up at the front of her house, and she's in the backyard of her house, and she's screaming, don't let me die, don't let me die, which is kind of odd for someone who just tried to commit suicide. But they, 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 they have to go through the house to get to her out in, the, out in the backyard. And as they're going through the house, it's a very bizarre scene because open all throughout the house are these open textbooks, these anatomy textbooks. Odd. And they get in the backyard, and she's out there laying on a mattress. And she's drug out, and she's yelling, don't let me die, don't let me die. So they you know, pick her up and take her to the emergency room. But here's what they found out. She was looking through these anatomy books to find out where on her chest she could shoot and not rupture any bodily organs. And so what she did is she got a mattress, drug it into the backyard, plopped it down, sat on it, shot herself in that spot, called the paramedics, paramedics came, gave her the pain meds. Your idol, her God, said... You have to lay down your life in order to get me. Jesus is the only God that says, I will lay down my life in order to get you. Her God and your gods will say to you, you have to die for me. And Jesus is the only God that says, I will die for you. Come to the true and to the living God, who when you get him, he fully satisfies you. And when you fail him, he fully forgives you. Come to him, the true and the living God, and consider that an invitation tonight. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the eyes of faith and give us grace to see through our idols and see how oppressive, how much they lie to us, how much they they demand from us, and help us to see the free grace 
and the love and the beauty of you who gave up your son. You sacrificed it all for us so that we could be freed, so that we could be, so that we could flourish as humans once again, freed from the trappings of our idols, freed from the things that are trying to kill us and actually to experience life, eternal life and, and life to the full. Help us to see and to taste your grace and your glory. And we would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.